All right, well, good morning once again, everyone. Welcome to Stonebridge Church. My name is Matt Yoder, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, Shane, thanks for leading worship. Trevor, uh, he's probably going to go give his hands an ice bath because as a fellow drummer who's played the cajon, holy cow, kills your hands. So especially thank him. But I just want to point out, Trevor, sorry to put you on the spot, Trevor, but he comes over from Iowa State, from over over from Ames a lot to help us out. And so really grateful for you and grateful for everyone helping out on worship team. Um, This morning, we have the privilege of having Ronnie Goble back with us. Ronnie, um, he can tell you more about himself, but I'll just give you the basics. So Ronnie is the man, and that's it. No. So Ronnie uh, is going out on a church plant to Madison, Wisconsin, and he's going to be the college ministry director, the salt company director there. Um, And you guys are headed out when? One month from now. So um, we're delighted to have him here today to help us walk through 1 Corinthians 8. So I'm going to pray for him, and we'll jump in. So God, thank you so much for Ronnie, and I, I pray now, God, that you would come and Um, speak to us through your word, through Ronnie. I pray that, um, God, you would, you would encourage us if, if that's where we're at, if that's, if that's what you would have for us. I pray that you would correct us if that's what you would have for us this morning. I pray that you would train us and teach us, Lord, come and do one or maybe all of those things this morning through Ronnie. And, and I pray that you, he would just speak now as if speaking your very words, God, and uh, grateful for him coming over, giving up his time and um, his talent to be here and, and, and serve you and, and serve us. So just I pray that he would be blessed as he speaks, Lord, and be encouraged as he speaks. So we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Well, thanks for having us out again, guys. If you were here last time, I was here in early January. My name's Ronnie, as Matt was saying. My wife, uh, Caitlin, sitting over here, and then my nine-month-old is over there in the, in the nursery. Um, so thanks for taking care of him. It's, it's cool even to think about. So my family and I moved here from Ohio about nine months ago because my son Jack was just two weeks old when we, when we made the trek out here. Was serving at a church in Ohio uh, that had actually reached my wife and I as college students in college. Uh, went on staff with that church and just kind of caught the vision for what would it look like to, to see churches started that would love college students. So I'm on staff with Salt Company over in Ames at Cornerstone Church reaching Iowa State students, a part of the SALT Network. And I wanted to to thank you guys for just your involvement in the SALT Network. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for for praying for us and and for giving. And then really even zeroing in on, thanks for training future leaders for the church. Even this morning, like Trevor being out here, I know know that you guys have had different people like myself get to come and have an opportunity to to teach and preach. And and in this year that I've had in Ames, I will look back and remember uh, just getting to come and be with you guys and, and have opportunities like this. I know I work with some other guys um, on Salt Company staff and names that have, you guys have gotten to meet as well. So thanks for what you're doing to train future leaders for the church so we can see more churches planted and more, more uh, college students, community members in some of these places reached with the gospel of Jesus. So today, 1 Corinthians 8, I know you were in Easter uh, last week. Hope you had an amazing Easter. We're gonna jump back into the f- book of 1 Corinthians today. And, and what you're going to see happening, you saw it a little bit in chapter 7 as he was talking about marriage and singleness, is now Paul is kind of just fielding questions that the Corinthian church has been asking him. He's fielding their questions, and that's what all of chapter 8 is going to be about. And the thing we need to understand at the outset that can serve as, as a warning for us is that the Corinthian church here, the community, is in danger of being destroyed. 
their church itself, he uses the words in the, in the passage, is it's devouring one another. It's, it's in danger of being destroyed. And the question is why? What we're going to find in the passage is it's actually because of their good theology, their right knowledge, their, their right understanding of, of biblical truth is what's threatening to destroy them. And the reason being is not because theology is bad, it's not because truth is bad, but it's actually incomplete unless it's used to, to love. Unless our theology is put to work in the purpose of love, it's actually incomplete and in danger of destroying community. And that's kind of the big underlying problem that Paul's addressing here. But he does it through this unique situation that if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll remember this. It's a situation that none of you are likely to face, but it's a situation about meat being sacrificed to idols. That's the situation that's, that's going on that brings up this problem of, of their knowledge being incomplete and not being used for love. And so actually just look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, and he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. So let's, let's talk about food offered to idols for a second before we even jump into what Paul's saying. So the situation in Corinth was this. Back in that time, there were, Corinth was a city that was, was not Christian before Paul came and brought the gospel there. And there would be these, these pagan temples, these false God-worshiping temples all over the city. And in these temples, one of the main like, ways that they would sacrifice to these gods and they would ask for these, these false gods' blessing on their life was actually by sacrificing meat. And so as, as Christians now, some of the Corinthian church had realized that meat is actually neutral. It's not good or bad um, necessarily in terms of, of idols. It's actually a good gift that God has, has given to us. And they came to realize that these idols that they had been worshiping all their lives were, were not real at all that there was one true God. And so they had come to this right knowledge. And so coming to that conclusion, their knowledge led to this freedom. They were, were free to eat the meat. It turns out that the meat at these temples was actually the best meat in town and it was the cheapest meat in town. And so they would actually just go up to these pagan temples that they used to worship at and they would freely grab the meat and their conscience was clean of this. It was the best meat in town. However, there were some other people in the Corinthian church that because of their background, in the idolatry that was going on in those temples, and some of them even just having a more fresh experience with it, maybe they, were, they had become Christians uh, more recently, they were still affected by, by these temples and by the idol worship that was going on there. And so when they would see their brothers and sisters in Christ eating the meat offered at the temple, it actually uh, troubled their conscience. And it was more than just kind of like troubling their conscience, but, but they knew for them to go and eat the meat that was sacrificed in these temples, it would be like they were betraying Jesus. Do you understand that? So remember, in their whole background, their whole story had been day after day, week after week, going to these temples, and they totally associated the meat at these temples with the idol worship that was going on there. And so to, to eat the meat or to see their brothers and sisters eating the meat, it, it not only troubled them, but it felt like a betrayal to them. And so now there's this conflict. There's a group of Christians that feel free to eat the meat. There's another group of Christians that don't feel free to eat the meat. And Paul is, is writing to address the question of, hey, so should we eat the meat? What do we do? And the people that had mostly asked it, they're called like the, the strong ones, the ones that had, had come to this knowledge. And their, their right knowledge was actually, it was true. It was, it was correct. Meat's neutral. Those idols aren't even real. Paul actually is going to affirm them that you actually are free to eat the meat, but the problem comes in when they use their freedom to serve themselves and not their brothers and sisters. So just follow that train of thought. Knowledge leads to freedom, but then the question for us today is what do we do with this freedom that we have in Christ? All these things you learn about Jesus on, on Sundays, all these things you learn when you read your Bible, what are you putting it to work for? 
are you putting it to work in a self-serving way or in a way that's, that's taking care to notice other people? And that's really, that's the bottom line. It's not enough just to be right. We have to use our knowledge to love. Or to put it another way, our freedom in Christ has been given so that we would love and serve others, not ourselves. That's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to try to learn how to love together. And actually for the next couple chapters, he's going to be tracing this theme out in a couple different situations. We're, we're to love. That is like the, the big goal of the Christian life is to love God and love others. But it can be hard in different scenarios to know exactly what, what love uh, looks like. I was a, a football player at a school in Ohio, and I played defensive line. Are you, are you guys familiar with what a defensive lineman does? If you think about a football game, what, did, what would you say the, the main goal of a, of a defensive line's role is in a particular football play? The answer that I was given in college is that we were there to create disruption. Okay, my first coach, he would call it chaos. We even had certain plays that were just called chaos because our, our whole goal was, was just to disrupt what was happening at the line of scrimmage with the offensive linemen. And, and we weren't necessarily the ones that had to chase down the receivers. We were just at the, the point of contact trying to create disruption. So that was our big goal as defensive linemen, create disruption. But our coaches didn't just say, so go out there and do it. They actually at kind of a, a lower level said, let's try to help you all develop some instincts that are gonna help you towards that goal. One of the instincts they wanted us to have was, was to have a, a quick, you call it a get off in football. So get off the line of scrimmage extremely fast. Because if you do that, if you do that smaller step of, of getting off the ball really fast, you're gonna help create disruption at the line of scrimmage. So my defensive line coach, the, his, his famous saying, he said over and over again, and it's actually not super logical, and I'll tell you about that, was you gotta launch your face and hands and then your feet will naturally follow. Okay, launch your face and hands. So you're picturing what that looks like. So as a defensive lineman, sometimes you would be tempted to be in your stance and then your first move would be to, to step one way or the other. And actually some coaches will, will teach that. It's not e actually a terrible way to go. But his whole philosophy was, I want you guys to get off the ball as fast as you can and create disruption. So rather than stepping with your feet first, just launch your face and your hands in a certain direction and then your feet are gonna naturally follow. So I can still picture him doing this thing. He would just go back and forth in our... He's like, face and hands, feet don't have to follow. So we'd be watching film. He'd put the laser point on you and be like, why don't you launch your, launch your face and hands, son? If you would have launched your face and hands, your feet would have naturally followed into the gap. And so that, that phrase, launch your face and hands, your feet will naturally follow, was like this phrase that he just repeated over and over again. One of his big principles to help me develop the instinct of getting off the ball so I could be disruptive. And I think what we're going to see Paul doing today is, is rather than just kind of saying, so go, go love people with your knowledge and your freedom, he wants us to help develop some, some instincts like that. Because here's the thing about the Christian life, guys. The, the goal of the Christian life is to love, but there isn't necessarily like a, a rule book um, laid out in the Bible that gives you every scenario of what it's going to look like. So we, we don't approach God and say, okay, so you want me to love, tell me what to do in this situation, and in this situation, and in this situation, but rather, there, there's principles. There's kind of something that God wants to do in our hearts to help us develop the right instincts so that we're ready to love in whatever situation that we face. Do you see what I'm, what I'm saying here? That's what we're gonna see in the passage, and so let's jump in now to 1 Corinthians chapter eight, and we'll start with verses one through three. You want me to use this? Should I turn this off then? Can you guys hear me? All right. So, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, 
we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The first instinct we're going to see here is, is humility. Do you catch that he was, he was basically calling them prideful? In your Bibles, you should see some parentheses around uh, those phrases in verse 1. He says, so we know that all of us possess knowledge. This was basically a way for some of those Corinthians to be like, duh, we all, we all know this. We know that meat isn't, isn't anything. We know that we're free to eat meat. And Paul's saying, so we know that. But get this, this knowledge, this stuff that you're, you're just kind of assuming everybody knows, it's serving to puff you up, not build others up in love. That's called pride. And don't we all have this desire to be, to be puffed up? Don't we all have this desire to be built up? We want people to encourage us. We want people to affirm us. And, and one of the things that happens with pride is we take this good desire to be affirmed and encouraged, and rather than letting, letting God or others speak those things into our lives, we try to take control of it ourselves. And that's called being puffed up. It's like that phrase, like your head is full of hot air. You're, you're artificially kind of puffing yourself up. And that's what these Corinthians were doing with their knowledge, their freedom. They were using it to serve themselves. So much so, if you see verse 2, he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's like, you guys, if you guys think you're, you're so smart and you know this, you're, you're dreaming. You're imagining it. This view of yourself that you, you have puffed up, it's, it's imaginary. This, the knowledge, your knowledge is incomplete. Imaginary knowledge. Why? Because it's incomplete without putting it to work in loving people. And I, I've experienced this, guys, and maybe you have. I, I was actually telling a friend the other day, I think this year for me has been just this bouncing back and forth between being deflated and being puffed up. Being, being insecure or being overconfident. I've noticed just in the context of ministry and working that my, my successes, they go to my head far too often. That's just kind of the natural thing that'll happen. And then my failures, they go to my heart. So my successes will kind of puff up my head. My, my failures, though, they, they deflate me. And it's interesting I was telling my friend, I was like, the interesting thing is in those moments where I'm insecure or in those moments where I'm more overconfident, the key thing is that I'm thinking about myself too much. It's like in both of those scenarios, I'm not thinking about God or others. I'm actually thinking about myself. There's a, a quote that kind of crystallized this for me by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And he said, humility is not thinking of yourself less. Or th humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You hear that? Humility isn't necessarily, it's not self-deprecation. It's not putting out a bad image of yourself to people. It's actually taking the focus off of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is, and, th and that's the instinct that we need to have in order to love. And so as he calls them out in their pride, he wants to humble them as well. He wants to put them in a place of humility. Look at what he said again in verse 3. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's he saying there? Here's the truth of the gospel. The gospel both deflates us and builds us up. The gospel deflates us and builds us up. Look what he's saying in the verse. He's not saying if you're somebody that loves God, then God will know and love you. He's actually saying the first thing in your relationship with God was that he knew you. In other words, if you're, if you're a person here today that is a Christian, you, you love Jesus, 
it's not because you, you figured him out. It's not because you found all the right answers. It's not because you somehow one day woke up and you were good enough. It's not because you strived. It's actually because he came and knew you. If, he's, if you're known by God, then you become somebody that loves God. The order is so significant here, and, it, and it's humbling. It means that we didn't save ourselves. It means that this is something that God did. He is known by God. He. That's, who's he? It's you. It's me. I know who I am. I don't know if you guys know who, who you are. But I'm, I'm sinful. I'm sinful. I'm prideful. My basic instinct is to puff myself up. That's, that's who I am. But I'm, I'm known by. What does it mean to, know, to be known by? It means to be, to be loved intimately. He knows, he knows your story. He knows my story. He knows what I've done. He knows my future. He knows every part of me, even, even the dark parts. Me as a sinner, I'm known by God. God, perfect, unattainable, yet he's in love with us. This is the gospel, to be, to be known by God. For a sinner like you and I to be known by a holy God, to send his son to die for us at the cross. And I think that humility, it's just birthed out of this. As we focus on Jesus, as we meditate on the fact that God knows us, and that's why Paul is using it here in verse 3, Watch what it does. Watch what humility does. It, it redirects our focus away from ourselves and towards God and people. That's the starting point for love. We're, we're unable to love others until we're humbled because we have to get our focus taken off of ourselves. And so that's the first instinct that Paul wants to develop in us is humility. Follow along with me to, to verse 4. Verses 4 through 7 says this. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we, we exist. Now watch this. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So what's Paul doing here? If you notice, he, he's, he's both affirming and confronting them. In verses 4 through 6, he actually affirms their knowledge, saying, you're, you're right, there is no such thing as an idol. Only through the one true God that you and I know do all things exist. But notice he also confronts them. In verse 7. Verse 7, he says, however... Not all your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church fully understand that yet. What's the instinct he's developing in us here? This is called empathy. Empathy is it's being able to put yourself in another person's shoes and, and not necessarily worrying about if you're right or wrong. It's, it's not totally throwing away the truth, but it's, it's putting right or wrong and arguments and facts and all that aside for a second and just looking a person in the eyes and saying, I, let, me, let me understand what it's like to be you. Let me understand what you've gone through. So Paul's going to affirm one thing that, yes, idols do hurt people. And we're going to talk about that. But he's also going to confront them and affirm a second thing that they were failing to see. And it's this, that idols hurt people, but so does good theology without empathy. Being right about the things of God is important, but it's incomplete unless we put it to work towards love. And, and I'm not very good at this, this empathy thing. 
uh, it's something I'm I'm working on, and even like getting getting the chance to to uh, preach this message today is helping it to be on my radar. My wife is a different story. You guys ever watched the uh, the show The Voice on I think it's on NBC. It's like you know I don't get super wrapped up into it. It's just they come up, they sing, they sit down, and but my wife, it's like every person, she's like sucked into their whole story, and she's crying with them when they cry, and she's jumping up and celebrating when they're celebrating, and like, I just will look over, and I'm like, how are you crying right now? Like, th- it's it's this show, and the judges are, are just saying all this random stuff, and I just look over, and she's, it's like she's she's weeping with this person that, that just made it, or they got a chair turned around, and I, I'm just kind of like, I don't feel it. I don't get it. But that's, there's something I need to step into more on that side of things, and, and that's empathy. And that's what Paul is challenging them with here. So he does affirm that, that idols hurt people. An idol is it's, it's whatever we look to to justify our existence. Did you notice in verses 4 through 6, he says, we only come to exist through this one true God. The contrast would be an idol is something that besides the, the true God, you're, you're looking to that for your existence, for your reason to live. I was, I was talking to a student at the University of Wisconsin a couple weeks ago. Not, he's not, not a Christian, um, didn't really understand the gospel. And he was in a place in his life where he, his words were, I don't, I don't feel much of a reason to live. I don't have any motivation. I kind of just stay in my room all day. My future, I have really no hope for it. I don't have a ton of reason to live right now. And as I asked him why, it was because of a series of broken relationships that he was just now at the end of. Three straight girlfriends that had basically betrayed him, and he was left not wanting to live. Now, we need to understand more about this guy's story, but what that tells me is that he probably had an idol in those relationships. The the girl, the relationship to him, that's what gave him meaning for his existence. And it could be so many different things in this room. The the idol I'm probably most tempted towards is is success and work. My my reason for living, my reason for my existence comes through my work, and that's why my failures go to my heart so much. Idols are dangerous. We only came to exist because of God, and so when we look to something else besides him for our existence, we run the risk of being betrayed. But Paul's main thing that he's doing here is he wants to say idols are dangerous, but good theology without empathy hurts people. Good theology about idols without empathizing hurts people. Look at verse 7 again. In verse 7, he says, Hey, not, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Defiled. They're being, they're being injured. They're being hurt. They're being tormented. Because remember, by eating the meat for some of these Corinthians, it was, it was this betrayal of Christ. That's what was happening in their conscience. They were betraying Jesus. So, so we don't struggle with the meat thing. Here's a, an easy example is, is maybe alcohol. Alcohol is something that is a, it's a good gift from God. There's probably many of, in you, of you in here that feel the freedom to, to drink alcohol responsibly as a Christian. You feel that, that freedom, and that's right. But there's also probably some of you in here or friends and family that you know that because of their background and history with alcohol, it is so associated to a betrayal of Jesus. It's so associated to a life and a background of darkness that for them to drink alcohol, they would never put this on someone else, but for them it troubles their conscience. It's like a betrayal of Jesus. And so, so for us, we need to learn how to empathize with those people. So how do we empathize? Here's a, here's a couple steps. Step one, know their story. Know their story. 
verse 7 says, through their former association with idols. So Paul knew they had this former association. Do you know the former associations of, of the people in your church and in your connection group? Even, even think about it. Think about the people in your, in your group. Do you know their stories well enough to know the, the darkness that was there? Because once you know their story, we can know their temptations and idols. That's, that's step two. We know what shaped them. We know where they've been wounded. We know now what they're going to be sensitive to. Verse 7b says their conscience being weak is defiled. Do you know the, the, the areas of temptation, the areas that trouble the conscience of your brothers and sisters? And then here's step three, and this one's hard. It's, it's we've got to enter in. Know their story. Know their temptations and idols. And then enter in. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Don't just give answers to people so you can move on with your life. This is, this is my temptation. Sometimes I can be the answer guy because here's, here's how it plays out. You've got somebody in your life, Christian brother or sister, they're, they're struggling with something and, and you, you got it in your head. You're like, oh, here's the verse. Here's the solution. Here's what needs to happen. And, and in that moment, this is what I'm doing is I'm going, I don't really want to be in this with you. I don't really want to walk through the, the pain of this. I don't want to bear this burden with you. So I'm going to give you a, an answer, and then I can tie a bow on this situation right now, and I can, and I can walk away feeling free of it. You guys ever do that? You, you give somebody an answer rather than, rather than sitting with them in their pain. And I'm not against answers. The Bible is full of truth. But, but empathy, this instinct towards empathy means even if we have the answers, we enter in, we ask questions, we see how, how can I bear this burden with you. And the reason it's hard is because we have to absorb some of the pain. It takes our time. It, it frustrates us. We now become a part of their life. But guys, that's, that's community. That's church. And what the church is and what hurting people like you and me need is not just a class in, in education and answers, but we need a community that will come around us. We need empathy. So where humility kind of puts us in the right place, to take our focus off ourselves and, and look out to others. Empathy now starts to, to move us towards other people, to learn their stories, to learn their struggles, so that we can actually love them rightly. rightly. The last one's in verses 8 through 12, so look there with me now. So he's continuing his thing. Verse 8, he says, hey, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. So again, he's, he's agreeing with them. You're, it's not, you're, the fact that you're right is not the issue. You are right. But listen, but take care. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Here's Paul's third instinct. It's, it's this instinct of carefulness, being careful. Notice his strategy here. In verse 9, Paul is he's affirming their freedom. He says, hey, yeah, you're right. Food will not commend us to God. We are, are no better off whether we eat or drink. It's not going to affect us. You are free. But then, later on in the verse, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
notice in your Bibles the switch in, in the verse about freedom. It's about my freedom, my freedom. But Paul's saying, but what about how your freedom affects other people? What about their conscience? Don't you realize that, that your life as a Christian is connected to theirs? We need to be careful that our freedom doesn't tear others down. And there's a danger here because that's naturally what we tend to do. We, we naturally tend to drift towards thinking about how our freedom only affects us. And so what does Paul do to promote carefulness? He tells them, be careful, and then he's going to say a couple more things. So what is it that he's doing in verses 8 through 12? Well, what we're going to see in, in verses 8 through 10, he wants to show them that you need to be careful because your actions actually affect your community, okay? Secondly, in verses 11 and 12, he says, your actions actually affect, like, Jesus' work in the world and in that person. So your community and Jesus' work. And you guys know much about, like, what uh, horse blinders are? I'm kind of still learning. The area that Caitlin and I grew up in um, was, it was kind of like Metro Detroit. And so moving out here to, to Iowa and even spending some time in Ohio, I've met some friends that actually ride horses. And what they've told me is that you, they have, there's a blinder on your left eye and a blinder on your right eye. And what a blinder does is it, it keeps you from seeing the, the total picture. And here's, here's two kind of cultural blinders that I think prevent us from loving people the way that we should. And we need to be careful to avoid these. And Paul's going to address them. The first one is, is individualism, and the second one is secularism. And now even as I hear myself say that, we're not sitting in, in philosophy cl class in college. We're not watching politics on, the, on TV right now. I just couldn't think of a, th th these words are what they are. I couldn't think of a better way to say them. But individualism and, and secularism. Let's do individualism first. This is a, a blinder that prevents us from loving people well. What individualism does is it blinds us to how our life affects our community. Some of the mindset of individualism, this is just the water that we swim in as, as people living today in our world. What it does is, is, it, is it blinds us. So do whatever makes you happy. You guys ever heard that before? Just do whatever it is that makes you happy. Or even have it your way. We see this all the time in just mass marketing. Like that's, that's what we're marketed at is it's all about you, right? What Paul's going to say here in, in verses 9 and 10 is, is actually you can be a stumbling block to other people. And he says they could see you. What if they see you eating the meat? Like your life as a Christian is not just this individual life separate from other people your your decisions your individual decisions affect your community here's an example of this so in in hebrews chapter 10 one of the big charges that the author of hebrews gives to the people in that book is that they need to not neglect meeting together as a church you need to not neglect that and he says because you'll your your brothers and sisters are going to be discouraged if you don't what's he doing he's telling them your church attendance your connection group attendance is not just kind of like this individual consumption thing that you do where it's like, if I feel good this day or if my schedule works out, then I show up and then I, it benefits me. That is, that's totally a part of it, but it's actually bigger than that. It affects the people around you. Church attendance this is just an example I'm giving you, but, but actually showing up, like being here this morning is, is either an encouragement if you're here or a discouragement if you're not here to the rest of, of the body. And same with your, with your connection group. Just the, the simple act of showing up to community, that, that decision moment when you have to decide, am I going to come or not? 
it can't just be, am I going to come or not because this is going to benefit me as an individual? It has to be, how is this going to affect the people around me? We need to remove that, that cultural blinder of individualism so that we see how our life as a Christian affects the people around us. So be careful is what I'm saying. I can't walk through every, every situation, but, but be careful that your decisions aren't blinded by individualism. And then the second one, uh, secularism. So what I mean by secularism is basically the view that this, this life and this moment is all that there is. There's nothing transcendent, nothing supernatural, nothing beyond. We don't believe that as Christians, right? Like the other people that, that maybe don't know Jesus yet would believe that, but not us as Christians. We're shaped by it more than we think. We are. We're, we're shaped by this, this denial of the supernatural. So the phrase like you only live once, live for the moment, get rich or die trying. There's, you could do so many more. These are all kind of phrases of like, hey, right now is all that we have guaranteed. And so, so live it up right now. Paul would actually agree with that. But he would say, yes, but right now counts forever. We do have this moment. But it, it counts forever. Whereas what individualism is going to do is, is blind us from seeing the other person. What secularism does is it blinds us from seeing their significance. The significance of the people that we're dealing with. What does he call Christians in verses, verse 11? He says, your brother for whom Christ died. That's who we are to each other. That's how the people in your connection group are. The people in your church are. They're your brothers and sisters. And not just that, not just in, in, a, in a blood family way, but in a bought by the blood of Jesus kind of way. We are brothers and sisters with each other. We're, we're so much more significant. There's no ordinary people in here. And it's sobering for me to think about how my failure to love my brothers and sisters is actually working against Christ's work in people. When I fail to love, I'm working against what Jesus is trying to do in that person. You see the logic that Paul uses there? He says, you're destroying your brother for whom Christ died. So Jesus gets destroyed on the cross. And then if I'm not careful, my actions destroy what Jesus was destroyed for. I don't want to be caught up in that. And so I think that's the question for us is, is do we see each other as family, as brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Jesus? It's, it's a corrective. It's, I'm not saying I know how to work it out in every situation, but just be careful. Be careful that you're viewing each other in this way. And maybe what would make sense is, is you can make it a habit to ask yourself, is this going to encourage or discourage my brother or sister? We see in verse 12 that he takes it up another level. And it's not just that we're, we're encouraging, discouraging our brother and sister, but he says you actually sin against Christ. So follow the whole flow of everything he's been saying. He's like, you're, you're actually so right about the fact that there is no God but one. That is theologically accurate, but it is cosmic treason at the same time because you're hurting your brothers and sisters who Jesus died for. It's a, it was a, somehow in this situation a sin against Christ to be right <laughs> but without love. So I think just the, as blunt as you can say is we've got to figure out how to not mess with the people Jesus died for by being careless. And, and that's the, the instinct that we need to have. And so if we can, can realize that there's other people that our lives affect and also realize how significant they are, I think we have a shot at being more careful with these things. So in conclusion, guys, humility 
it, it focuses us upward and outward. It moves us away from self. Empathy, it moves us towards people and love. And then carefulness, it helps us work out in any given situation what love is going to look like. And the bottom line that Paul's getting to is that knowledge is insufficient and it's even dangerous if not used to love God and love others. So get knowledge, but don't, don't stop there. Cultivate humility so that you're in the right place to use that knowledge and the freedom that comes from it. Cultivate empathy. Learn each other's stories. Know where one another are weak. And cultivate this, this kind of carefulness where we can understand the significance of, of what we're dealing with. And just imagine the type of community that we can have if we take these things seriously. Think about the people in your life. What, what opportunities do you have to love them? And at the same time, what's it going to cost you to love them? There, there are likely some freedoms that, that you could enjoy as an individual, but you can't enjoy if you're a part of a community. We have to count one another more significant than ourselves. Look at verse 13. This is the last verse. He says, therefore, this is Paul's conclusion for them. Therefore, because of all this that I've said, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So what does it look like for us to then have that attitude? I don't think the, the eating meat is going to be the, the scenario, but this, this message isn't about the particular scenario. It's about those underlying principles and that question of, of what does love look like? What is it going to cost me to love my brother and sister? And so you could even just do a fill-in-the-blank type of thing. Therefore, if blank makes my brother stumble, I will never blank lest I make my brother stumble. could be a great connection group question for you guys this week. And above all, we need to know this, guys. Verse 3, Christ knows us. He knows us. That's, th that's the ultimate humbling truth. What did, let me ask you a question. What did Jesus do with his freedom? What did Jesus do with his freedom? What, did, what was the cross all about? Who had more freedom than Jesus? Who had more, more of a right to enjoy the entire universe that he made besides him? But he laid it down. That's what the cross was. It was the, the ultimate laying down of Jesus' freedom in being God so that he could become a man, die a humiliating death for us on the cross so that he could know us. And we find ourselves today, guys, known by him. So let's follow Jesus in that life of love. And then let's love because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, do, we long for our, our community to be more loving. We long for, for a way to, to bridge that gap. God, we desire to, to cultivate humility and, and empathy. We desire to cultivate this carefulness that we see from the Apostle Paul. Help us all to learn how to live in community with one another in a way that glorifies you serves people. Help us to see each other as brothers and sisters. I pray even now for all the different types of situations that could come up in a church where we need to figure out how to love one another. Give us the courage and the humility to do that this week. We love you. Amen. So you guys can stand up and as we respond in worship, really think about what 
what it is in your life that could be a stumbling block to others, something that you do that could be hindering your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, from following him uh, in a way that, that glorifies God. And, and think about what you're doing even in your everyday life and work, um, just when you're out and about, that could be hindering non-believers from coming to know Christ and, and the love that he has for them and the love that he displayed on the cross. So think about that as we respond in worship.